The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are going to begin a study this morning of the little book of 1 John. And the first thing I want to do is ask you to pray for me as I attempt to expound this book. I'm sure you're aware that we all have paradigms that we filter life through. We have theological paradigms that we filter things through. And my greatest desire as I go through this book is that I would not force my views upon the text, but allow the text to adjust my views. So please pray for that. I can be hard-headed, but God can get a hold, get attention and, you know, open my eyes. So I ask you to pray for me and with me that we'll be able to do exegesis and not eisegesis of this text. I also welcome your insights. If you've got some passage you're going through here and you see a passage coming up that you feel you understand what's going on there, please text me, email me, let me know what's going on. Um, the reason I'm doing this book is because it's kind of a follow-up to the Gospel of John. But another reason I'm doing this book is it puzzles me. When I read it, I scratch my head and I say, I don't have a clue. So I'm doing it to challenge myself and uh, hopefully we'll all learn something as we go through this, uh, this little book. <clears throat> now in our study this morning, I just want to give you kind of an overview, kind of an introduction to the book to you know, tell you what we're going to be looking at. We're not actually going to look at the book today, okay? We're just going to give an introduction the book of 1 John is not a personal letter. It's not a letter that's written to a church. There's no greeting or other introduction. There's no health wish. There's no thanksgiving. There's no final greetings. There's no author's name included anywhere. It's not like the book of Romans or Ephesians. It's not addressed to an individual like Timothy or Titus or Philemon. Here is what we normally see. Paul to all the, those in Rome. So we know, okay, Paul's writing this. He's writing to those in Rome. He's writing to Christians in Rome because he says, who are loved by God and called to be saints. So, okay, that's who he's writing to, right? We got that. All right, we see the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Paul and Sosthenes to the church of God that's in Corinth. Okay, so now he's writing to the church in Corinth. Paul's writing him. Sosthenes is with him. We see this in Galatians 1, 1 and 2. Paul to the churches of Galatia. All right, so again, we know what's going on there. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. So those letters are to churches. Well, we also have personal letters written just to individuals. 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2, Paul to Timothy, my true son in the faith. So Paul's writing a letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. Philemon 1.1, 1, 1, Paul. And Timothy to Philemon. Personal letter to these individuals. Then we have also letters not written to churches, not written to individuals, but written to groups of people. For example, James. James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's who he writes to. Peter says he is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, there's only two letters in the New Testament, which don't include the name of the author. They are what? You should know one of them anyway. Yeah, First John, okay. What's the other one? Thank you, Sharon. Hebrews. No authors there. They don't tell us who's, who's writing them. So, you know. So First John doesn't contain the name of the writer. There's no reference to who the recipients were. So we don't know who's writing it. We don't know who he's writing to. We don't know where they live. The only thing that can be said for certain about the intended readers based on the content of the letter is that I think, first of all, they're believers. And we'll talk about this a little more in a section. But he is writing to Christians. That's important to understand. All right, Because when, when you look at what he says... Is he trying to get unbelievers saved? What's he trying to do? He's writing to Christians. Secondly, 
whoever he's writing to appear to be well known to him and he to them. All right, they seem to have a relationship with each other. And thirdly, we see that they're facing a threat from false teaching. And he's writing to deal with that. A threat which was both serious and which appears to have risen from within their Christian community. Because he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have went out. So they, they departed from them, and then they're teaching this false doctrine. This is probably a letter that was designed to be circulated among several congregations. All right? And hopefully we'll see that as we get into it. Now, scholars say this is one of the most difficult of all New Testament books to date. Okay? And one of the problems is because they date the fourth gospel to be in the 90s. All right? Most, most, most authors do that, which I think is pretty ridiculous um, because when the when you look at when the fourth gospel was written, it, there's no mention of anything about the destruction of Jerusalem. Would any writer write after that catastrophe and not mention it? That just seems strange. J.A.T. Robinson points out in uh, redating the New Testament, he says, in the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70, if it had already occurred, the gospel's silence about this is puzzling. That would be pretty puzzling. And John makes a reference to a site in Jerusalem in the present tense that no longer stood after the 9th of Av, A.D. 70, when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In John 5, 2, he says, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now the pool was rediscovered by archaeologists in the late 1800s. It had been buried in debris since the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and it proved to have five colonnades just as described here by John. D.B. Wallace also argued that the present tense in 5.2 is not to be understood as a historical presence and thus provides a significant clue to the early dating of the Gospel. And we went through this when we went through the Gospel that you know I believe it was dated in, in 60s, or the beginning of the 60s. So 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, most people believe were written after the Gospel. And that makes sense to me. And most believe it was written before Revelation. And I agree with that. Although, you know, Revelation often gets a date of 96, which again, just does not fit. You know, in the text, he's told, go measure the temple. And he looks back and says, the devil was destroyed 16 or 26 years ago. No, I can't measure it. You know, no, it, it wasn't destroyed. All right. Now, Robinson's date for the epistles of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he says around 60 to 65 A.D. And I think that's a good guess. I think that's probably a, you know, that's after the Gospel, that's before Revelation. I think that all these epistles were written from Jerusalem and then sent out to a province in Asia. It was a circular letter. It was intended to be passed around to various churches in Asia. So, First of all, who's the author? We've got to try to see if we can figure that out. Who wrote these epistles? Well, discussions of authorship of 1 John are inextricably linked to discussions of the authorship of the Gospel, right? The vast majority of modern scholars recognize the similarity among all the Johannian writings and believe that the Gospel of John in these letters and Revelation have a common authorship. Okay, most people are in agreement on that. The Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, they're all written by the same person, okay? Because there's so many similarities between them, especially phrasing, vocabulary, grammatical forms, doctrine. It's clear the same writer wrote these. Now, David Smith writes, Indeed, the epistle throughout has the Gospel as its background and is hardly intelligible without it. So he says, you know, he's relying heavily on the Gospel here. So if we want to know who wrote 1st John... All we need to know is who wrote the Gospel of John, right? And we do, right? Hopefully we do. We've just been through that, okay? And guess what? It wasn't the Apostle John. Now, the popular view <clears throat> that the author of John is normally viewed as the aging Apostle John, but it's important to remember that nowhere in the Gospel or 1 John does the author actually state his name. This has led to a lot of... Uh, Widespread discussion in scholarly circles over who the author might be. And everybody's not in agreement on this. Okay? 
According to church tradition, the Apostle John wrote the fourth gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John of Revelation. Now, there were various church fathers in the second century that uh, thought the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, was the author. But he, they, there was other suggestions. But the problem was there was an increasing urgency about this conclusion for, mainstream, for the mainstream church because after the, the middle of the second century, because the fourth gospel seems to have been a favorite among the Gnostics, and therefore, apostolic authorship was deemed really important if this gospel is going to be rescued from heterodox. So Irenaeus, around AD 180, stressed that this gospel was written in Ephesus by one of the twelve, John. Well, I hope to prove from you from Scripture that the Apostle John didn't write this. And I don't think it's really that hard. So tradition says that John wrote the fourth gospel, although there's some difference of opinion as to which John. There's often, let me give you a statement that I think you you might agree with, okay? There's often a difference between what people say the Bible says and what the Bible actually says. You ever notice that? Huh? And if we got more in the habit of asking for chapter and verse, I think a lot of that could be diminished, okay? You hear the Bible says, and I'm like, where? Somewhere. Could you narrow it down? You know? Can you narrow it down? Because that's important. Because a lot of people think the Bible says things that this just, and I'm like, boy, I've never read a verse like that in all of it, you know? <clears throat> so, and I think it's important that we have an understanding of who the author is, because I think it, it'll help us understand some things that he said. Because the author of the gospel and the epistles and revelation was not a Galilean, which John was. He was a Judean. And this is what makes it so different than the rest of the Gospels. Now let's forget tradition for a moment, and let's just look at the Scriptures and see if we can determine who wrote the the fourth Gospel. And it's not really difficult because we're told who wrote the Gospel in the book itself. Okay? John 21.20, Peter turned and saw the disciple who Yeshua loved following them. So here the writer mentions this disciple who Yeshua loved, and then he states that this is the disciple that wrote the letter. Verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. Now the antecedent of this is the disciple whom Yeshua loved in verse 20. So we know who wrote the gospel. It was the disciple whom Yeshua loved. So all we really have to do is figure out Who was that? Right? And it's really not that hard. Does the Bible say anywhere that John was the disciple whom Yeshua loved? It doesn't. It says that nowhere, but everybody believes that because they start with the presupposition John wrote this, so they read that and they say, that's John. The Bible never says that's John. never connects it with John in any way, shape, or form, but we just go along with that. Does the Bible explicitly name anyone who was loved by Yeshua? Yes, it does. But here's the interesting thing. Now listen, there is only one man, one man named in the Bible that is said to be loved by Yeshua. Does that surprise you? One man. Now I said one man named. Because in Mark 10... It's the story of the rich young ruler, and it says Yeshua, looking at him, loved him. But we don't know who he was. And he might just be Lazarus, okay? So, uh, let's look at John 11, 1 and 2. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So, here in chapter 11, we find that Lazarus, he's ill. And then verse 3 says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, they're, they're sent to Yeshua, and they're telling Yeshua, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So here we're told by the sisters that, you know, Yeshua loves their brother. Verse 11, I mean, chapter 11, verse 5 says, Now Yeshua loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then verse 36 says, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. So Lazarus' sister said, Yeshua loves him. The inspired author of the text says, Yeshua loved Lazarus. 
The Jews said Yeshua loved Lazarus. It just seems to me the Spirit of God is going to great lengths in John 11 to make known that Yeshua loved Lazarus. I mean, it's just so stressed. Lazarus is the only man named in the Bible that is specifically identified as being loved by Yeshua. That makes this case, I think, very strong, because it's not like there's a whole lot of candidates out there, okay? we got one man in the Bible that said this. Now, I want you to notice something I think is very important. In John 12 is the last time we see or hear about Lazarus. After chapter 12, this celebrity, this man that Yeshua raised from the dead, disappears from Scripture. This good friend of Yeshua, who he loved, he just suddenly disappears. We never hear from him again. Now notice where we see him last. John 12, 1 and 2. Six days before Passover, Yeshua therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, all right, whom Yeshua had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner from there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So this is the very last time we see Lazarus named in Scripture. He's reclining at a table with Yeshua. Then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. But what's really interesting is right after Lazarus disappears, someone else appears that we've never heard of before. 13.23, one of his disciples, whom Yeshua loved, was reclining at Yeshua's side, at the table at Yeshua's side. So the last time we see Lazarus, he's reclining at the table with Yeshua. The first time we see the disciple whom Yeshua loved, he's reclining at a table with Yeshua. Just a lot of coincidences here, right? So the only man named in the Bible as being loved by Yeshua abruptly vanishes from the gospel. And then the only disciple singled out as being loved by Yeshua abruptly appears in the same gospel. So it's my contention that this disciple whom Yeshua loved is Lazarus. That doesn't fit a lot of people's worldview, but I just I can't seem to get around this from Scripture. Let's look at John 18, 15 through 16. Simon Peter followed Yeshua. So did another disciple. That disciple was known by the high priest. So here we got another disciple. He's just not named. All right, he entered with Yeshua into the courtyard of the high priest. This is the Beth Den. You just couldn't walk in there, all right? Average people couldn't get in there. They would defile the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. Peter couldn't get in. This other disciple got in. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, the other disciple was known to the high priest, and he gets Peter in. Well, if you read John 20, you see that the other disciple is the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Okay, we see that she ran and went to Simon Peter and said, and the other disciple, the one whom Yeshua loved. So here he's identified. Now, if we compare John 18 to Acts 4, I think we'll see the other disciple could not be John. All right? Acts 4, 1-23 tells us what happened to Peter and John following the healing of the crippled man. All right, Peter and John were seized. They were brought before the rulers before Annas and Caiaphas, in order to be questioned about the miracle. And 13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Yeshua. Now notice what these Jewish leaders recognized. It was at that moment that they suddenly understood that these men had been with Yeshua. The principal thing we need to get out of this passage is that it was at that point in time that the high priest and other rulers became acquainted with Peter and John for the first time. But our text in John 18 tells us that the other disciple was known to the high priest. This teaches us the high priest didn't know John or Peter before this incident, so the other disciple could not have been John. It just couldn't be. Now, I think you would agree that the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a pretty profound event in the life of Yeshua. Would you agree with that? He's been in the, the grave four days. The Lord goes, rolls away the stone, calls him, and he just comes out of the grave. Okay? Corruption had set in. You know, his sister said in the King James, by now he stinketh. Okay? But he raises him. It's a big deal. I mean, that's a big deal. Yet, this miracle is not mentioned by any of the other Gospels. Not mentioned at all. 
They don't offer a hint that this occurred. And they never mention that Yeshua had a friend named Lazarus that he loved. That's not mentioned in any of them. Strangely enough, it turns out that there's another prominent figure in the life of Yeshua who is also nowhere to be found in the first three Gospels. That's the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Is that another coincidence? They never mention a disciple about a disciple Yeshua loved. They never mention Lazarus. He's not in those first three Gospels. So how did the fourth Gospel ever come to be attributed to John if Lazarus wrote it? I mean, I, th- I think there's strong biblical evidence that, you know, we, if you want more on this, uh, I encourage you to go back to the Gospel and look at the introduction of the Gospel. We went into a little more detail there. How did it ever be attributed to John? Well, let me take a shot at this. Lazarus is the Greek rendering of the name Eleazar. Willis Barnstone writes this. In a letter that Clement wrote to Theodore, he stated that there was more testimony attached to Mark than was presently available. Within this original gospel was a discussion of a young man, John Eleazar, Eleazar being the Hebrew of the Greek Lazarus, who after Yeshua raised him from the tomb, went to the Garden of Gethsemane clothed in fine white linen garment over his naked body. So he says this guy Lazarus, who the Lord raised, was known as John Eleazar. Now this is history. I don't think this is inspired, but I think it's interesting. It means Lazarus, who Yeshua raised from the dead, was known as John Eleazar. So did John write the fourth gospel, first, second, third John, Revelation? Yeah, he did, but not the apostle John. John Eleazar or Lazarus. Now, Eleazar is a name found only in priestly lineages. And I believe that Lazarus was a priest. As a priest, which I said makes so much more sense when you're reading the gospel, when you're reading the epistle, when you're reading Revelation... It's not a Galilean who wrote this, okay? It's a Judean, a priest. As a priest, he'd be able to enter into the Beth Din while Peter had to stay outside because Peter was a layman. Well, he actually got Peter in. Let me give you several reasons why I believe that Lazarus was a Jewish priest. These are also reasons why I think the Apostle John, a Galilean, didn't write this epistle. All right? First of all, He knows the name of the high priest's servant, Malchus. All the Gospels record Peter cutting off his ear, but only Lazarus records his name. Secondly, only the fourth Gospel records the name of the high priest, Annas. So he knew the high priest. He knew him by name. Thirdly, he was familiar with the family relations of the high priest because only in the fourth Gospel do we learn that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Lazarus is known to the palace household. Peter has to wait outside, but Lazarus just gets right in. He couldn't have entered there if he wasn't a priest. He was acquainted with the relationship of the palace staff. Only the fourth gospel tells us that one of those who questioned Peter's association with Yeshua was a relative of Malchus. It's the only place we learn that. And sixthly, he was aware of the motives of the priest. Only the writer of the fourth gospel explains why the priest couldn't enter Pilate's judgment hall. They didn't want to be defiled. He's the only one that tells us that. So it's my opinion based on these facts that Lazarus was a priest, and that is why he could enter into the court of the high priest. That is why he could get Peter in. This Lazarus was known as John Eleazar. It was this John, I believe, who wrote the fourth gospel. Now, as we go through this gospel, I'm going to use the word John, okay? Please understand I'm talking about John Eleazar or Lazarus, okay? Some people question me, did you change your view on that? No, he was called John, okay? It's just every time I got to say Lazarus, I don't. I think you get the point, all right? Now, as I said earlier, according to a majority of scholars, the same man wrote the fourth gospel, first, second, third John of Revelation. My position is that man was Lazarus. So the author of first John is the same man who wrote the fourth gospel, Lazarus, a.k.a. John Eliezer. Now, This will shock you. My view on this is a minority view. Okay? (laughs) To say the least. There are some other people who hold. I'm not the only one who holds this view, all right? Most hold that the Apostle John wrote these five letters. Um, John Piper gives an argument for Johannian authorship, and I want you to look at his argument and just see what you think, okay? So here's his argument for Johannian authorship. He says, first... Because the earliest Christian writers acknowledge that John is the writer. 
Irenaeus, Clement of Alexander, Tertullian. This is true, but it doesn't prove that John wrote it. I mean, they're writing 150 years after, and they're saying, oh, it was John the Apostle who wrote that. Uh, we don't really know. All right, look at his second point. Because the writer identifies himself as an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly life, how does that prove Johannian authorship? Is John the only person who saw Yeshua alive? I mean, I read that and I'm like, wait a minute. The apostle wrote it because the writer identifies himself as an eyewitness. That's a stretch there, people. That is a real stretch. According to the fourth gospel, Lazarus was an eyewitness. Okay? He sat at the table with him. He reclined at him. All right? His third argument, the style and terminology are almost identical with the style and terminology of the gospel of John. Again, yeah, that doesn't prove anything because I agree too, the same man wrote it. It just doesn't prove it was John. But Piper goes on to say, now watch this. Everybody knows, except Curtis, that the author of this letter was close enough to Jesus to touch him than it was John. He's the only one? How, how is this an argument? I mean, come on, John Piper's a brilliant man. How is this an argument? Everybody knows if the author of this letter was close enough to touch him, had to be John. John was the only one allowed to touch him. There are no other probable candidates among the disciples of those early days. So the rejection of John is virtually always a rejection of the very first verse of the letter. What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched with our hands. I just can't believe that he writes stuff like that. I certainly don't think that John was the only one close enough to Yeshua to touch him. These are weak arguments for Johannian authorship. It's important to know that the writer of 1 John, he never identifies himself by name. We've said that, but also he never identifies himself as an apostle. Some people said, well, this had to be an apostle because he speaks authoritatively. Do you think he knew he was writing under the inspiration of God? Do you think he knew that? You think he just thought, maybe I'm writing a good letter here and someone will like this. No. I think he knew, and so yeah, he speaks authoritatively. He's speaking for God. When you do that, you can speak authoritatively. He didn't have to be an apostle. Alright, I think there's one thing that we can all agree on when it comes to authorship. Hopefully we can all agree on this. Okay? Whoever penned this epistle did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We all agreement there? Okay, that's all that really matters, Okay? That's all that really matters because we know that this was put together by God. I think it's helpful to know who the author is. gives you a little bit, maybe different flavor when you're you know, looking at the text and understanding, but it's not critical. We know this is written by the Spirit of God. All right? <clears throat> so let's go on. Who are the recipients? As I said earlier, there's no reference who the first recipients were or where they lived. Tradition asserts that the book was written to believers in the Roman province of Asia Minor. That's Western Turkey. That's with Ephesus being the major metropolitan area there. All right. And this seems to be pretty much a consensus. This went to believers in Asia Minor. <clears throat> now, let's look at a little historical background. What is happening here? What's going on in the writing? Well, there were men spreading false doctrine in these churches, and they were causing believers to question what they believed. Colin Krauss writes this. He says, some of the members had taken on board certain beliefs about the person and work of Christ that were unacceptable to the author of the letters and those associated with him. These new beliefs involved a denial that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, and that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. A sharp disagreement arose which resulted in the cessation of those who embrace these new views. And Krauss calls them cessationists, the people that left, the people who were teaching false doctrine. And again, that's because of 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. So he says they're cessationists. That's, that's how he describes it. And here's the interesting thing about you know, reading, studying 1 John. It's like listening to a phone conversation when you're only hearing one end of the conversation. You know, someone of your friends or someone's talking on the phone, you don't know what the other person's saying. You're trying to 
fill in the blanks, right? Well, that's the thing. We don't, we don't know the whole conversation here, so we're trying to figure it out. All right? <clears throat> but here's what I think we can figure out. There was a doctrinal error regarding the person of Christ. They denied that Yeshua was the Christ. In other words, they denied that Yeshua was God in human flesh. Now, the Gospel's really strong on this. Most theological errors go astray on the person and work of Christ because these subjects are essential to the Christian faith. Now, these heretics also either denied that sin exists in our nature and practice, or they said that sin doesn't matter since it doesn't interfere with our fellowship to God. It's funny, the Gnostics took two, they were split on two different views. Some of them like, we don't have sin, and the others, sin doesn't matter. Okay, so they both came up with a crazy idea here, but many scholars identify those teaching the false doctrine as Corinthian Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism didn't become full-blown till later on as far as being in writing, but you know it started earlier, and you know that there are seeds of this we see, I think, here. Gnosticism was the philosophical blend of various pagan, Jewish, and semi-Christian systems of thought. The two main tenets of Gnosticism were dualism and illumination. Now, dualism meant that all matter is evil and spirit is good. And since matter is evil, a good God could not have created the material universe. So they don't believe God created the universe. So what they did is they said, well, God posted a number of emanations from His supreme being, and each got a little further and a little further and a little further away from Him, each one of these creations, until someone was far enough away from God that they could create evil matter. Because they didn't want to associate with God with evil matter. All right? <clears throat> they also... they. Since matter is evil, they couldn't conceive how God could take on a human body subject to pain, suffering, and death. So, they denied the Incarnation. All right, Again, something very strongly taught in the Gospel. Now, Serenthus taught that Yeshua was not born a virgin. He was the natural son of Joseph and Mary. He was a very good, he was a very righteous man. At his baptism, the Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove. Yeshua then proclaimed the unknown Father. He performed miracles. And at last, the Christ departed from the human Yeshua before He suffered, died, and rose again. So, the Christ wasn't involved in any of that stuff, okay? Serenthus separated the man Yeshua from the divine Christ. So, He wasn't a theanthropic being. He wasn't the God-man. Gnostic dualism also led to some moral aberrations. On the one hand, since they thought all matter was evil, some Gnostics practiced asceticism. Okay? I mean, they beat themselves, they tortured themselves, they denied themselves, which was an attempt to be righteous by harsh treatment. All right? Catholics got into that stuff too, somewhat. Here's the interesting thing others within Gnosticism. Reasoned that since the enlightened spirit is separate from the evil body, morality doesn't matter. So they claim to be righteous in spirit even while they're indulging in the flesh. And John repeatedly confronts this error in 1 John. Now, you know, this error <clears throat> um, that's going on, I think I see this error in preterism. Under the umbrella of preterism, I see some in preterism who say, we don't sin anymore. Sin is gone, sin is done, we don't sin. And yet they involve themselves in all kinds of immoral activities. And I said, well, that's a good view to hold when you're doing sin, right? If you're sinning, you've got to do something to justify it, so you just say, we don't sin anymore. That's a form of Gnosticism. And that's what 1 John is dealing with. So I think it's going to be a very practical book for, it, for us. Now, the other main feature of Gnosticism was illumination. They claimed they had insight into the things that nobody else had. All right, Gnostic comes from the Greek word means gnosis, which is knowledge. So they claimed to have superior knowledge. They had a special superior knowledge that other people didn't have. So they made other people feel like, wow, I don't, they know something I don't. Now, <clears throat> I think John, Eliezer, Lazarus, <laughs> Maybe writing to the churches that Paul warned in Ephesus. In Acts 20, Paul called for the Ephesian elders. 
He called them because he had something he wanted to share with them. So the elders came together and he told the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. He's warning because he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, I'm warning you elders because there's going to be people coming in teaching false doctrine to try to destroy this flock. Now watch what he goes on to say, and from among your own selves, among this group of elders will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's what he says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Okay, so he's saying, listen, these are, I'm warning you. John may have written his epistle to combat the fulfillment of this prophecy. False teachers did come in. They came into Ephesus. All right, there's also a connection here to 1 John and Qumran. Um, When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and compared with the writings in the New Testament, scholars noted many parallels between themes developed in 1 John and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's, I think, significant. Most of the parallels to 1 John are found in the Manual of Discipline, which was their basic code of conduct for the Qumran community. This is how we live kind of thing, and that's where they find these comparisons. They include uh, light and darkness, truth and deceit, uh, division of people into two groups, sons of light, sons of darkness. So there is some connection here with the writings of the Aseans and the people at Qumran. All right, now let's talk about, to me, this is the most important thing we need to discuss, the theme or the purpose of the book. Why was this book written? Let me be honest with you here. I really believe I'll be much more qualified to talk about this after we finish the book. You know, because I haven't expounded it yet, you know, so I'm like, I'm not really sure, but I think I have an idea. So let's just skip this and we'll come back to it at the end. No, I'm going to give you some idea here. All right. I'll give you my AT&T position. Okay. You all know what that is at this time. Okay. This is the position. Yes. Um, But I will be better equipped, I really believe, later on. There are different views as to the purpose of 1 John. Does that shock you? Huh? And they really revolve around understanding who is the audience of the book. And I think that's important. You you really have to understand who the audience is. I think it's clear. I think he tells us who his audience is. John Stott understands the audience to be mixed, believers and unbelievers. I don't see that in the epistle. I don't see, and to you unbelievers, to you make-believers, I don't see him addressing that at all. But because of that view, he states that the purpose of the book is to destroy the false assurance of the counterfeit. In other words, there's some people in there that think they're saved. They're not really saved. As well as to confirm the right assurance of the genuine. So he's confirming the genuine, he's destroying the counterfeit. Dual purpose, all right? Stott goes on to say, his great emphasis is on the difference between the genuine Christian and the spurious. How to discern between the two. In other words, this is... By reading this book, you're going to understand how, who the fake Christians are. So what does that do? It turns us into fruit inspectors, judges, right? Oh, good, now we can tell who's fake. I knew he wasn't real. You know, I knew that. Stott goes on to say, the prominent theme of this epistle is Christian certainty. I don't agree with that at all. Okay? Now, others, like me, understand the audience to be believers. He's writing to Christians. Therefore, they identify the purpose around pastoral exhortation. Henry Alford says this, To certify believers of the truth and reality of the things in which they believe, and to advance them in the carrying out of their practical consequences. So he's writing to Christians, encourage Christians. Now, we know, we just finished the gospel, the purpose of the gospel was what? To bring men to faith in Christ. We've gone over that so many times. It is the only book in the New Testament that specifically states it was written 
to bring people to faith in Christ. These were written that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, and believing you may have life in His name. So John says, I wrote this so you'd see who He is, you'd believe it, and you'd have eternal life. Okay? John is not written to bring people to faith in Christ. John is written to believers. He tells us that it's about discipleship. When John writes his gospel, he states his purpose as evangelistic. He's trying to lead people to Christ. When we come to the epistle, chapter 5, verse 13 tells us he's talking to people who believe in the Son of God. He's trying to lead them to a deeper understanding and a fuller maturity in their faith. That's why I think this letter is going to be good to us. It's written to Christians and it's saying, listen, this is how you're to live as Christians, as image bearers. So my presupposition, and show me where I'm wrong, is the readers of this epistle are believers. Okay? Look at John 2.12. I'm writing to you. This gives us a clue about what he's writing. All right. Little children, why? Because your sins are forgiven. Now, let's look at that in Young's, so we have a literal translation. I write you, little children, because the sins have been, it's past tense, forgiven. Who, has, who is identifying that have their sins forgiven? It's believers, right? Who else has their sins forgiven except believers? You don't go in and out of salvation, okay? So if your sins are forgiven, you're a Christian. This is a description of a Christian, only Christians, have their sins forgiven. In uh, chapter 3, 1 and 2, he writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Who's the us? That we should be called children of God. So Paul's, or the writer, John, is putting himself right in with them. We're called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Okay, so I think he's clearly delineating these. This is what I'm writing to. You Christians, you people are God's children. You people have had your sins forgiven. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm writing to believers. The intended audience of this epistle is believers. And they're not in danger of losing their salvation. That can't happen. They're in danger of damaging their fellowship with the Father by the way they live. I see the purpose of this letter as fellowship. Colin Krauss writes this. John wrote this epistle to enable believers to appreciate their fellowship with God. And he wrote to deepen that fellowship along the provision of criteria to show the cessationists are wrong. The author provided other criteria which, if applied, the readers to themselves would show that they are in the right. They are the ones who know God. See, Cross is saying, listen, the, the writers, they know God. And he's telling them, you're the ones that know God. You're the ones that have fellowship. You're the ones that have eternal life. He's affirming that. He is not questioning that. The author's purpose to, listen, you know, we get this idea that, you know, the Bible's always questioning people's salvation. What do you think was the most messed up church in the Bible? Corinthians, right? I've seen churches on the side of the road called the First Church of Corinth. How dumb are you to name your church at the most screwed up church in the Bible? Uh-huh. He's writing to the Corinthians, and he knows what's going on. He knows the immorality that's happening there. He, he says, you guys are doing stuff that Gentiles don't even do. You're so screwed up. And in the very letter he writes to those at Corinth who are set apart for God, saints by calling. What? He calls them saints. He affirms at the very beginning of this letter, you're God's children. And then throughout the letter he says, you need to start living like God's children. Paul never questions their salvation. He doesn't do that because he's writing to Christians. All right? They're the ones who knew God, who have fellowship with Him. The author's purpose was to bolster the assurance of his readers by the double strategy of showing the cessationist claims to be false and showing the readers that they are in the truth. This accords with the one explicit he says, the readers, they're the ones in the truth. This 
statement or purpose in the letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know that you have eternal life. The readers needed this reassurance because their confidence had been shaken by the propaganda of the cessationists. They're being taught false doctrine. He's trying to encourage them, trying to strengthen them. Now, sadly, listen, sadly, this book is used today to teach that a Christian's assurance, their assurance of eternal salvation rests in part on his or her good works subsequent to regeneration. So many people take that approach. Okay, yeah, this, this is how we make sure, this is where you get your assurance. Commenting on 1 John 2, 7-11, through 11, we'll get into this when we get into the text, but uh, J.M. Boyce, Recalls John 13, 34 and 35. You remember that text? John 13, 34 and 35. And he says that it's only by love that the world may know that Christians are indeed Christians. Well, first of all, that's not what it says. Does it say anything about Christians in that text? He tells them to love one another. And then he says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. He didn't say, they'll know you're a Christian. They'll know you belong to me. They'll know you're my disciples, all right? But then he wants to expand this to make an additional point. Boyce goes on to say, it is only by love that Christians may know they're Christians. So according to Boyce, where does our assurance come from? Okay, our love, our works, right? So we have to examine our life and say, how am I doing? Am I loving everybody? Good, I'm a Christian. He goes on to say, the Christian may know that he has been truly made alive by Christ when he finds himself beginning to love and actually loving those others for whom Christ died. If this is true, very few people should have assurance of salvation. Okay? This is, first of all, this is not what Yeshua said. Yeshua said the world needs to see our love so they'll know we belong to Him. He doesn't say Christians need to see love so they'll know they're Christians. Listen, it's a mistaken exposition of 1 John to think that we have to get assurance of salvation by our love. This is really close to the teaching of medieval Catholicism. And it was precisely for this reason that the Reformers point that medieval Catholicism put love where it should have put faith. Assurance of salvation doesn't come by introspectively evaluating the measure of our love. I see the Bible teaching that assurance is an inseparable part of saving faith. It's not based on your works. Look at Romans 4.20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver. He's talking about Abraham. Concerning the promise that God gave him. So God made Abraham a promise. I'm going to do this. Abraham believed it. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God made a promise. I believe that. Fully convinced is from the Greek word pleruforeo. And this verb means to fill completely, to convince fully. See, faith always has in it an element of assurance. This needs to be emphasized today because, you know, the Lordship teaching is destroying assurance. And I know, you know, there's some of you listening that are Lordship, and I, so this is going to be fun, all right? And listen, I want to hear your view. I want, to, I want you to correct me. I want you to tell me where I'm wrong because I want to deal, deal with this. But here, remember this. I was Lordship for much of my Christianity, okay? All right, Lordship and free grace are two views if you're, you know, new to this. All right, Lordship view would say... You're not a Christian if you don't do all these things the Lord says you have to do. Okay? If you're not obedient, you're not a Christian. And there's various you know, degrees of this, of course. Some people are hardcore. Church of Christ is hardcore in one end, lordship. Okay? If you sin, you're lost. You know, you're not even a Christian. Okay? You mess up, you're lost. And it's like as if they don't. And then on the other end, you got the free grace. And some people, you know, they've got an extension of free grace out there. Everything's possible because it's all under grace. Okay? And then everyone else somewhere in the middle, all right? But you got two sides. And I think the problem with lordship view is it destroys assurance. And listen, BBN, here in this area, 
took John MacArthur off the air for this very reason. They stated that his teaching was damaging the church, but it was causing believers not to even think they were believers anymore. Because if you didn't do this, 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 all of a sudden you're not saved. And that's good because you would always view what you don't do as the acceptable line. Okay? You're, you're good, but anybody that does these things you don't do, no, they're, not, they're out. Okay? Do you have assurance as a believer that you will spend eternity in heaven? And if so, what's it based on? See, if you're basing it on your performance, you have a false assurance. If we base assurance on our performance, what group out there riding bicycles around should have really strong assurance? The Mormons. Man, they are, you know, if you want to look at what they don't do, people think that's what makes you righteous. What you don't do. I could take you to a cemetery and show you a bunch of things these people don't do. Okay? They don't do anything. doesn't make them righteous. But the Mormons, they don't drink, smoke. They don't even drink coffee. They give up their lives, you know, years of their lives to ride around on bicycles and proselyte. Okay, they should, you look at them and they look very righteous. They look far above most Christians. They're damned. They're preaching and teaching a false gospel. And the preoccupation with this uncertainty of salvation was a peculiarity of the Puritan error. If you spend a lot of time in the Puritans, you'll get this. Okay, they question everything. But it was not part of the Reformation error. But it gets lumped in there because the Puritans were part of that movement. All right? If I seek assurance through my good deeds, which many people do, one of two things must necessarily result. Okay? First of all, I will minimize the depth of my own sinfulness. Well, boy, I did that. That wasn't good. But, yeah, it can't be that bad because I know I'm saved, so that, that's okay. They do way worse than me. You know, so you minimize the depth of your sin. It's not bad. It's okay. I'm still good. Or, the other thing is, and a lot of Christians end up here, I will see my sinfulness as hopelessly contrary to any conviction that I'm saved. In other words, I can't be saved. I mean, I'm a mess. I can't be saved. God wouldn't have me. Now listen to me. Both Calvin and Luther taught that assurance of salvation was of the essence of faith. A central tenet of the Reformation teaching was that the personal certainty of one's eternal destiny was tied up with what it means to believe the gospel. Martin Luther wrote that faith is the sort of faith that does not look at its own works, nor at its own strength and worthiness. Noting what sort of quality or new created or infused virtue it may be, but faith goes out of itself and clings to Christ and embraces Him as its own possession. So Luther's saying, you don't trust in your works. You trust in Christ. John Calvin warned against any attempt to find assurance by looking at your works. I love this quote by Calvin. He said, from one's works, conscience feels more fear and consternation than assurance. In other words, you look at your works and you're like, oh boy, I'm scared to death. I'm not loving my brothers like I should. I'm not doing what God called me. Oh my word, you would just never have any assurance. Now listen to me here. This is a kind of conundrum for me, but most people today who hold to Calvinism hold to a lordship view. But, let me suggest to you this. I think Calvin was a Calvinist. Can I sell you on that? And this certainly is not a lordship statement by Calvinists. See, this idea of, you know, Calvinism being connected to lordship comes from the Puritan era. And I mean the Puritans, they examined everybody. And like I said, I, I got to let you know, and I got to remind you over and over, I was lordship for many years. What it led to is I became one of the biggest Pharisees that ever lived. One of my criteria was someone was a believer, if they cussed, they were off the list. They can't be a believer and cuss and talk like that. I know, that's what I mean. It's just, you know, it, you know, we, we draw these lines. You know why? I didn't cuss. So I could draw that line, right? The things you don't do, you can blame other people for doing. 
And I became a Pharisee. I became a fruit inspector. I was judging everybody. And then I was confronted with it and dealt with it for a while, and God changed my heart. And it, it broke my heart because I realized it's got nothing to do with me. It's about what God does. It's about His grace. And my assurance comes from what Christ said. Christ said, if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. I believe Him. That's my assurance. It's based on Christ. It's none of, nothing that I do, nothing that I've said, nothing I've gone through, no ritual that I've done. Our assurance, like Abraham's, is to be based on the Word of God. Watch what Christ said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my Word, you got to hear it, right? You can't believe what you don't know. And believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. So you hear the Word, you believe, you get eternal life. Simple, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. People to believe, this has gotten so screwed up lately, okay? Especially the Church of Christ, believe is a schenectache. Which means, I can add anything I want to to believe, and it's all part of the thing, it's an all-encompassing belief. you got to confess, repent, be baptized, on and on and on. They can add whatever they want to that, because it's, it's not a schenectache, all right? Faith is believing something is true. That's what it is. You get a proposition, the Lord says, I'll do this. You believe it? That's faith. It's not adding a bunch of things to it. If you, well, if you believe, you'll do this, 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 this. Maybe, maybe not. I believe that Yeshua is the Christ. So what does He promise me? Everlasting life. So if I doubt my eternal destiny, I'm not believing Yeshua. I'm questioning Him. Assurance is necessarily a part of believing the Gospel. If you believe Him, that's it. You don't have to perform to say, well, see, I'm doing the right thing, so I'm in. Yeshua offers a guarantee to everyone who trusts Him. If I base my assurance on something I've done or how I live, I'm not trusting Christ. I'm trusting my performance. And that's a dangerous place to be. And like Calvin said, that should cause you to fear more than have assurance. You know, if you're like any Christians I know. <laughs> okay? I think that we should always be examining ourselves. Not to find out if we're Christians or not. I think that should be settled by believing the gospel. But I think we should be examining ourselves. Are we being Christ's disciples? Are we people of love as He's called us to be? Are we following the word that He's called us to be? Are we good image bearers? Are we demonstrating to the world the Christ that lives within us? I think that's the examination. But I don't think we're ever told in Scripture, check out and find, figure out if you're really a Christian. If you believe the gospel, you are a Christian. Some people, that drives crazy. One of those Church of Christ guys we're fighting with, ah, they think that's an abomination to, to teach grace and faith alone. Well, that's all the Bible says. The word alone's not in there. Well, okay. Listen, 1 John was not written to encourage introspective worrying about whether our weak level of godliness means we don't, we're not really even a Christian. That's not what it's written for. John wrote this letter to encourage the Christians. He wanted them to know the truth. Then they would realize the false ideas. The letter shows that Christians are children of God. They know God as Father. And if God's their Father, then they're brothers and sisters. And John shows them the kind of life that the children of God should live. As God's children, here's how you should live. There's several terms in this epistle that John uses as synonyms. Fellowship with God. Knowing God, abiding in God, seeing God, those are all synonyms for fellowship. They all describe our relationship with God in varying degrees of intimacy. Now let's talk about this for a while, intimacy and fellowship. Because often we think of fellowship, you got it or you don't. No. Our relationship with people varies. Right? You know, some people, you're their friends. I'm not talking about Facebook. Those are, unless you know them, they're not really friends, okay? I'm talking about people you have interaction with that you, you know, you know and you talk to, Okay? There's different levels of intimacy with friends. Like, I, okay, I talk to this guy, but it's just casual talker. Or this person I really know and we really share heart-to-heart -heart stuff. You know, there's a, there's a level there, okay? Fellowship with God is a matter of greater or lesser intimacy. 
So when we speak of being in fellowship or out of fellowship, I think we're oversimplifying our relationship with God. For example, a child's fellowship with their parents is rarely either perfect or non-existent, right? It's usually somewhere in the middle there, all right? And it varies from day to day. All Christians possess eternal life, but not all experience the life, the joy that God had intended for us. In John 10.10, he wrote that we would have abundant life. And that's what 1 John's about, telling us as believers how to have abundant life. You want life at its greatest, you want life at its fullest, live the life of love. Love your brothers and sisters. John's subject concerns true and false versions of fellowship with God. It's not an invitation to be introspective and doubtful about your salvation. God finds in every person who walks with Him in intimate fellowship a person through whom He can manifest Himself to the world. We've talked about this. We're image bearers. When people look at us, they should see God. Let's be honest. We fail at that most of the time. Okay? And that's First John encourages us to do that. Be known by your love. Love your brothers and sisters. But don't question your salvation if you're not. Get your act together. Okay? Because your fellowship with God, intimacy with God. Listen, people, I, I think, I pray to God that this epistle would grab us by the heart and shake us and wake us up, that we would become a people who walks in intimate fellowship with God. Because I think, for the most part, we don't have a clue. To just be in that fellowship so much that when people look at us, they see God. I'd love to be able to say like Yeshua, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to just kind of share some thoughts on this little book as we get in it. Lord, I pray that you would direct our thoughts as we look at this text. If I'm wrong on this theme, Lord God, please open my eyes. Please show me. Help me to see the truth of your word, Lord, as we go through this book. I pray it wouldn't just be an educational experience. I pray it'd be a life-changing experience. That we would understand what it means to live in an intimate relationship for you, with you. That whatever you want is what we want. That when people look at us, they'd see you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, this is going to be fun, and I don't really mean that, <laughs> okay? Um, I think it's going to be, that, again, that's, that's why I chose to go this direction, because I don't understand First John. I think I do a little better now after, and I've been reading this over every day, the whole book, and I've been praying about it, and I've been looking at all kinds of research on it and trying to get my head wrapped around it, and so... I feel like I know more now than I ever have about it, and I really do think it's about fellowship, but I could be wrong, and if I am, I want to know that, because I'm not trying to teach a view, I want to teach what the Bible says, so any questions, comments? Yeah? No? Well, here's, uh, Bob says, uh, Bob Krushank, is it surprising that Piper would cite Arrhenius to prove Johannian authorship? Everybody does. Okay, it's not just Piper. Arrhenius also said Jesus lived to be 40 years old and he had a 15-year earthly ministry. Hmm, that's different than Scripture. wonder where he got that from. Just because the source is ancient doesn't necessarily make it true. That is for sure. Okay? And, and people throw these ancient sources out. Well, he's disconnected 150 years from the actual happening, so how does he have insight into this? And because they all agree, here's my view on everybody agreeing. Okay, through the years like this. One guy gets off track. He says something, everybody follows him, and no one does the research. Hey, so-and-so said, I believe it. So-and-so said, I believe it. And you, if you trace it back, you'd find out they're all just going back to one source that probably isn't even a source after all. Okay? I mean, it's just not. So, you know, we have to be careful. It's just always better to stick with the Scripture, and that's why I think that, you know, the author was Lazarus. I think the Scripture defends that position. There's just too many coincidences there that, you know, I don't see how you can get around that. Anybody else? We done?
All right, Mike Sullivan writes and brings up a good point. He says, was the man having sex with his father's wife called a so-called brother? He is in some translations, but that is not in the Greek text. See, see, you have to question, because a man who, if anyone who's called a brother, Paul says, does this, 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 you're like, brothers can't do that, so let's say so-called brother. That's not in the text. That's eisegesis at its finest, okay? Let's make up stuff. Let's throw it in there to confuse people. And that's done with the book of James. Can, they take James and say, can that kind of faith save him? It doesn't say that. I, I don't know who this is from, but it says, Paul teaches Jesus Christ was living in his followers. And that was before AD 70. I agree with that. He was living in. That was the whole purpose. He was to be demonstrated. You know, they were to be image bearers. They were to bear. You know, he showed them the Father. Now his disciples are to do the same thing. Show them the Father. Show them Christ through the way they live. And, you know, people, we got to ask ourselves some hard questions, you know. Are we demonstrating God to the people we come in contact with? By our actions, by our attitudes, our words. I mean, we're called to love each other, you know. That's what we're called to do. It's not going to get us saved, okay, but it's what the saved are to do. All right. Yes, Dora. I wanted to say real quick, I think the Christians of China should probably pray for Americans. Oh, well, see, I think the Christians anywhere should pray for Americans, okay? I've said it before. I think the American Christianity, this is the worst environment to live the Christian life because we are so prosperous. We have everything. Everybody know, you know, and so it's just, you know, you go to churches and it's the ungodliness is being proclaimed from the churches. And, I mean, pastors are getting together and signing abortion bills saying, we agree with abortion, you know. I'm like, how sick is this going to get? So, yeah, they, I'm sure they look at the American church and they do pray for it. The problem is we're exporting this stuff. You know, in Africa, the health, wealth, gospel is just going crazy over there. People are moving into the big cities because they want to be part of the health, wealth, gospel. It's like all the pyramid schemes. It works for those at the top. You know, the preacher's preaching it. They're getting jets and they're doing all the stuff. The people down below, they're just struggling to get. All right. 